Romans 5, 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. It has been a morning here at Redemption Hill. Started off with not knowing he was going to the storage unit for a little bit, getting there, a missing key situation led to another thing, and then I tried to get overzealous and pull a six-foot pole out of the ground. It did not go well. <laughs> Broke the pole in half. It has just been, it has been just one thing after another, but it's been wonderful, and what a good morning for a sermon like this one, because this one is all about grace in the middle of darkness. Grace when everything just seems to not be going very well. And I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14, verses 27 through 52. That's Mark chapter 14, verses 27 to 52, as we all settle in here. Well, we were out of town last week. We went back to uh, around the parts where I grew up, which is around the St. Louis area. By God's grace, I actually got to meet up with some friends from college. And as crazy as it is, I can't believe this. It has been 10 years since I have been out of college. And 10 years later, me and these guys sat around together. We've had 10 years of adult life since that time. And one of those guys, he's a really uh, introspective kind of person. His name is Kyle, and he asked us, what, if you could go back and talk to yourself in college, what would you have said? What, what have you learned in the last 10 years of life? What would you say? And as we all went around, we've all had very different experiences, living in different states, having different kind of jobs, some of us in ministry, others still faithful to, to Christ, but, but doing secular vocation, uh, and, and all these things, most of us not where we thought we would be when we sit there at our senior year of where will you be 10 years from now. Most of us would not have said that. And the reality was, is there was a theme that came up we said, if we could, what did we, what do I wish I knew when I was in college 10 years ago? Or what, wish, what could I try to explain? And that theme was this, life is so much harder than you know it's going to be. Life is so much more difficult than you can ever imagine. The things that all of us had experienced in 10 years, we would all said, there is no way I knew it was going to be that hard. I had no idea and as we shared, we sat there, but one thing all these Christian men said, but man, the other thing that I've learned about this life is God is so much better than I ever thought he was. There is a reality to that statement 
that God is so much better. And I could have never gotten that through to my 22-year-old self. And I loved the Lord at that time. I was a Christian, but there was no way I knew the depth of the love of God and just as sure inherent goodness that the Lord has. Ten years later, I would say life is significantly more difficult than I ever thought it would be. But oh, God is so much better than I ever, ever knew was possible. And that's what came out of that conversation. And as we look at Mark chapter 14, verses 27 through 52, I think we get hit with that. Life is so incredibly hard. Jesus is getting ready to walk through the betrayal of some of his closest friends. But in it, we see these traces of grace in the darkness. In the darkest times of your life, there will be these little glimmers of grace. And the thing is, is will you be looking for them and will you be able to see them? Because his grace is ever present. And we see that in the life of Jesus as it looks like everyone betrays him. In fact, verse 50 will tell us, and they all left him and fled. But Jesus has said throughout the gospels that when everybody forsakes him, his father will not forsake him. There is grace in the darkness. And that's what I want us to see this morning. Looking first at Mark uh, chapter 14. We'll just take these a couple. I'll read the whole passage. We'll take this together. Picking up in verse 27. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said empathetically, I, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John. He began to be distressed and troubled. And he said to him, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Can you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed in the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up at once and said to him, Rabbi, and he kissed him. 
And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew a sword and struck the servant with the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a, as a, come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is a deep and dark kind of story. His closest friends are meant to be near him, to care for him, and they all flee and betray him. But what I want us to see is that there is a little bit of grace, just a little bit of grace, creeping through the darkness all the way through. See, what we first want to see is that there is grace, and grace even for traitors, in verses 21 to 31. Or excuse me, verses 27 to 31. See, Jesus is with them, and they, they had just finished up having the Lord's Supper. He, he institutes this thing. The Passover meal is finished. They sing a hymn together, which was a, a typical thing to do. Sing from the Psalms at the end of the Passover meal. They've sang a song, and they come, and they are on their way to the Mount of Olives, as we can remember, as we've been studying through this passage. They'll, they're staying outside of the city, so they'll come into the city by day, and each night they'll travel out of the city. But as they're going there, Jesus tells them, before that, as, as they finish up that song, you will all fall away. And he quotes from Zechariah thirteen seven, and he says, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. See, that passage that he quotes is pointing to the good shepherd who would one day come. The true fulfillment of this prophecy that Israel had these other shepherds, these priests and Pharisees, these rabbis who were unfaithful to God. And they were using and they were hypocrites. But Jesus was coming and he was teaching that he was the good shepherd. But it also emphasizes for us that the eye in that passage that strikes the shepherd, it is God himself. And we read last week in Isaiah that it said it was the will of the Father to strike him. From Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 11, that in this moment it is emphasizing and driving home, God is the one who will do the striking. Who is going to strike the shepherd? God is going to strike him. God's will is being fulfilled. These scriptures being fulfilled. And there's nothing that's going to stop that from happening. But even though this is a difficult and hard thing, this is under the provision, the providence of God Almighty. And there is no way around it. And Jesus is saying, and when I am struck, you will all scatter and you're all going to leave me. But then there's this little sliver of grace. In verse 28, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. In John 21, it tells us that on the Sea of Tiberias, which is another way of saying the Sea of Galilee, that after the death of Jesus, and Jesus has had some appearances, or, and it's hard to get these storylines all together, but seven of the disciples go out and they go back to fishing. If we remember from earlier in the Gospels, when, when Jesus called them initially to be his disciples, they were out fishing, and he tells them to what? Cast your net to the other side, and they bring in this big haul of fish. And I, and I just want to think, in John 21, to try to put yourself in this situation, these guys are out in the boat, their Savior has died, things are not going the way they thought he was coming in to kick the Romans out, he's going to be big and victorious, and it's a big, amazing thing, and he's dead. And they don't know what's going on, and so they go back to fishing, and they're there, 
And this guy that they put their hope in and their trust in, he's dead. Hope is dead. And they're far out and they're fishing and they're toiling. And all of a sudden from the shore comes this voice that says, throw your net to the other side. And they do it when they do. They bring in this big catch of fish. And Peter, for whatever reason, he puts clothes on. I, don't, I never get that. When I go swimming, I usually like remove some clothing so I can swim a little better. But he's just exasperated. He's just so excited. And he's, he does the typical Peter thing. He acts and then thinks later. And he puts on his cloak and he jumps into the water. And John's riding it. And he's like, I don't know why he did that because we just brought the boat in. And he's like, just trying to swim. And I'm not sure. You know, I don't, I, I don't think he's like much of a Michael Phelps. He's probably not like butterflying to this. Or he's just like doggy paddling with his cl- wet cloak now on him. And this is what he's doing. He's running to Jesus. And he's running after them. And Jesus takes Peter and he talks to him and he asks him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Because what we know happens later in the book of Mark, Peter denies him how many times? Three times. And he restores them. See, in this moment, Jesus is telling them, you're going to fail. You are going to fail. But listen, when I rise, I'm going to go before you in Galilee. And it's this, this glimpse of grace that even when we say, like Peter, that we know what we're going to do. Oh, if I have to die, if I have to die, there's no way I'll betray you. Man, if, even if all these other guys sitting around the table, I mean, what, what audacity. Like, they're sitting right there. Like, even if John doesn't stick with you because he's a wuss, I will, Jesus. And he doesn't. And Jesus is saying, Peter, you're going to be scattered. But when I rise, I will go before you. We were also this weekend, what took us out of town, we were at a wedding. And at this wedding, the couples uh, stood and they, they wrote their own vows. And their vows were like every group of people who write their own vows. I mean, you know, I promise to love you no matter what, yada, 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 no matter what, no how bad it is. And I sat there as somebody who's been married for eight years. And I'm not saying this cynically, I promise. But I sat there and I said, they have no idea. They have no idea what they just promised to do. They have no clue what they just promised. My poor wife sat there, dressed, or stood there, I guess, dressed in white. I was clean shaven, significantly lighter. (laughs) Happy and giddy. And that poor woman sat there and had no idea what she was getting herself into. She promised to love me no matter what. And eight years later, I will tell you, I've given her some things that have probably made her consider those vows. See, she married a broken, sinful man who stood across from her and had no idea what he was really getting himself into. And these newlyweds are sitting there, and you're sitting there, and you're like, no matter what, I'm going to love you. And they have no idea what they're promising to do, right? And that's Peter and these disciples. No matter what, Jesus, we're going to stick with you no matter what happens. He has no idea what he is saying. He is naive and he is foolish. And I'm not cynical. I'm not cynical. Because while they have absurd and totally unfounded confidence in themselves... Jesus still promises to restore them. Jesus still promises you're going to scatter, but there's future grace for you. 
And as I look at newlyweds and even in my own marriage, and I look at your marriages, and we all sit there, and the reality was is we had no idea what we were doing on wedding day, did we? I'm not cynical because I sit there and I also know that if Jesus is there and he is in that marriage, he will get them through. He will restore them. You have no idea what it's like to promise I love you until they sin against you. And it really hurts. But Jesus is saying, if you stick with me, there is grace even for the future. And maybe you're sitting here and you're like, I have done that. I've sat there and I've said, God, I'm promising this time, oh, I'm ne- th- that was the last time X ever happened. I'll never mess up ever again. God, this time I'm promising. You went to church camp and you wrote it down on a card and you nailed it to a cross somewhere. Or I don't know, you lit it on fire, right? All those things that we grew up doing. This is like weird stuff. I don't know why the 90s were like that, but that's what we did. And we did it and we're like, oh, I pro- this is the time. It's not gonna happen. It's never gonna happen again. And then you sit there and Two weeks later, it happens again. And Jesus is saying, you have no idea what you're doing. You're so naive. You have absurd and unfounded confidence. But here's what I want you to know. Resurrection comes. Resurrection is in your life. You're a new creation. Those old will die and the new will rise up. And he's saying there's future grace for you every single time. That's the promise that God is making in this moment. You promise that you'll never do it again. You're never gonna fail. Jesus looked across from you. He knew exactly what he was getting. You might look at your spouse and I'm telling you, you had no clue. And if you're young and you think you did, you're wrong. You have no clue. The depths of their heart. But Jesus knew. He knew all of it. And he still looked to you and said, I'm committing myself to you. You're mine. And he called out to you. And you called out to him. And he was faithful and just to forgive you of your sins because that's who he is. He's your advocate. And he's saying no matter what. Because in Romans 5, 8, it tells us this. God shows his love for us. And that when, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't die for you because he thought he was getting someone really great on his team. Jesus died for you because he's madly in love with you. And he is saying in your darkest, deepest moments, when you are a total traitor to the gospel, there's future grace and it's unlimited and it is free and you have been lavished in it. Grace is ever present, even if it's pointing to the future. There is grace for sin, but there is also grace for our hard circumstances and our troubles. There is grace for the troubled, picking up in verse 32. And they went to the place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Stop there just for a quick second. So they go to this place, and it's an olive grove that's actually below the city. It's, it's really just kind of this beautiful word picture uh, that, that we have to see. If you're, if you're reading this familiar with the territory, because what you know at the end is Jesus is going to go up on a mount, uh, that Calvary, like Golgotha, and he's going to give up his body. But it's here, it's below the city in a valley in an olive grove that he yields his will. He yields, not my will, but your will be done. It's this really beautiful story that God is weaving in where he's saying he's going to take Jesus low so that Jesus will be able to do what needs to be done so that he might be exalted 
high in the giving of his body. And he does that, and, and they bring him to this thing, and he says, sit here while I pray. And he ticks with him Peter, James, and John. He tells them that, his, that he is distressed and he's troubled. He says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. I just want to take a quick little aside. Jesus is the perfect man. He does nothing wrong. And when Jesus experiences deep trouble and deep sorrow, what does he do? He prays to his father and he gets his friends. He doesn't go sit in isolation. He brings people around him and they're messed up people. They're massively imperfect and they actually totally fail him. But he still does that. What a thing for us to know that the savior of the world, the man who never sinned in his deep distresses and troubles, when his soul is so sorrowful, it is even unto death, it's deep, bitter, horrific sorrow. He is saying, I need my Lord and I need my friends. And it's ironic because even these friends, these are the friends who are the ones who've made some really big promises. Peter is the one who has just said, even if they all leave you, I'll stay. I'll die even if I got to stay. But they all say that. But in Mark 10, if you remember, it was James and John who said, what must we do so we might sit at your right hand? And he says, can you drink the cup that I have to drink? We're going to talk about the cup here in just a second, the wrath of God. And can you be baptized in the baptism, which I have? And they're like, yeah. And Jesus is like, no. You actually can't. You can't take this now, but you will. And he makes that promise in Mark 10. And we know that later they do. They follow in martyrdom. They follow, but right now, because Jesus was telling them in Mark 10, Mark 14, you're going to run away. He brings these guys who pledged allegiance. He's giving them everything they need to be faithful in this moment, and they're not going to do it. But it's an amazing thing, because even when his friends fail, we know that God never fails. And that's what he does, is he brings these guys around him. And then it says, and going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. His soul is in such anguish. He's so distressed and troubled that he literally falls to the ground in anguish and prays. And when he does, he cries out in verse 36 and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. That word Abba, it's like he's saying, Dad. He's crying out in intimacy, Father, all things are possible And he does what any reasonable person does when circumstances are just overwhelming. He goes to his good and kind father and he says, remove this cup from me. Now we can look, listen, there are people in history who go to death with seemingly a lot more bravery than Jesus in this moment. Socrates, who's not a Christian, almost mocks death when he takes and drinks of the hemlock. What's wrong with Jesus? Why can't he do it? Because I don't think he's afraid of physical death. He's afraid of the fact that God is the one who will strike him and the cup in the Old Testament is the wrath of God. Jesus is getting ready to experience something significantly more difficult than any physical death. He's getting ready to take on the wrath of God for all of the sins of the world. And he knows that's what he's supposed to do. He says, remove that cup, remove your wrath from me. But he doesn't stop there. In this moment of deep distress and anguish, as the perfect man giving us the perfect example what to do in our circumstances, he says, yet not what I will, but what you will. What a thing to say. So often we just tag it onto our prayers. But not what I will, what you will. And it's almost just like a just in case, just in case you don't pull through. 
Jesus, when he says it, is saying, I want to submit my will to God. I want to submit myself to the Lord and to Christ. And he does that, and he finds his friends, and what are they doing? They're sleeping. Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the fresh flesh is weak. And that happens then again. And what we see is that even when our friends fail us, Jesus will not. The hymn writer truly says in the song, what a friend I have in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. And all our sins and griefs to bear. And what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. And oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. In the midst of our circumstances and the difficulties of life, I'm not saying that God will relieve all of your problems just because you pray, but I do think there is peace that you forfeit because you don't run to Jesus and you don't run to the God. And he continues on. Because he tells them, and I think the amazing thing and the little bit of grace that we get for Jesus, even though that that happens, and even though he does ask for a change of circumstance and it doesn't happen and he still submits himself to the Father, but Jesus is still doing this. And when he is talking to them in verse 38, he doesn't say, watch and pray so that I might not get betrayed. Watch and pray so that I don't get in trouble. He says, watch and pray that you might not enter in temptation. That is a man who has lived out the two great commandments, who loves God and loves people. He loves God with his heart, mind, soul, and strength, that even in his deepest anguish, in his deepest pain, when he is sorrowful unto death, his concern is not for himself. His concern is for someone else. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he tells them, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. There is a huge contrast happening. Their spirit is willing. I won't betray you, but the flesh is weak. They can't even stay awake. Jesus, his spirit is willing because he says, not my will, but yours be done. But his flesh will not prove to be weak. He submits himself to the Father and he will willingly go to the cross. He will not advocate and scream out and say, I can't do this. I'm an innocent man. Instead, he will sit silence like a sheep getting ready to be slaughtered. And he'll go and he will be that sacrificial lamb for sin. He will render his flesh unto God the Father to take on our sin and our punishment and our shame. He deals with the wrath of God even though his friends completely betray him. Not once, not twice, but they fall asleep three times. And they're not ready. And if you look here, what I'm trying to say is, I know you have circumstances in your life that are so hard, and all you want to do is, God, just take this away. Please remove this cup from me. I can't do it anymore. I can't keep doing this. And we cry out, and the circumstances don't change. And our friends aren't very good friends. We think to ourselves, what can I do? 
Psalm 73, 26 says this. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In the midst of my difficult circumstances in life, my flesh, my heart, my friends have failed. In different ways and in different times. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Everything else in this life may fail you, but God is promising he will never fail. Where does my hope and help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. That's who he is. He will not fail you. He will not disappoint you. Even if circumstances continue to get worse, because in Jesus' life, they're going to get worse. He's going to get betrayed, but that ain't the end of it. And we'll see that in the next coming weeks. But we're reminded that even in the midst of those hard circumstances, there is grace. There is so much grace. There are grace for traitors. There's grace for those of us in troubled times and difficulty. And there is grace for the shamed. Picking up in verse 43 finishing out in verse 52. All right, we're going to get the giggles out now because I want to get it serious later. A guy runs away naked. All right, you okay? Got it? I said it. Got that out. I think that's, that is, that's going to climax here in a second. But what I'm saying is, is that's the, he's telling this story, and Mark starts to heap on some shame throughout these verses. He starts to say these things. He's saying, this is bad. This is really, really bad. This is really bit bad. And then he's going to get there. This guy runs away naked. Okay, and so that's what we will see. And as we walk through it, it and immediately, while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. Now, we've been reading these passages, like, week by week. So it helps us maybe to say, like, oh, yeah, Judas, one of the twelve. He has said this over and over again. Like, nobody at this point in the story needs him to say, Judas, you know, one of the twelve. Like, you know who Judas is. He's, like, belaboring the point. Why? Because he's one of the twelve. And Jesus is saying, listen, even criminals know— Nice. Awesome. If only that could have happened like two seconds ago. I tried to get everybody to laugh about the guy being naked. Kendall, Kendall. All right. It's okay. This is great. Shame. Uh, Anyway. uh, That was awesome. Reset. He's one of the 12. I'll just say this now, too. Even criminals know that snitches get stitches. Right? Judas is a betrayer. He's a traitor. He's a snitch. He sells his friend out. The most, like, grimy people of our society, like, you, they'll do anything. But the one thing you don't do is you don't sell out your guy. You don't sell out your friend. You don't do that. 
You definitely don't do that in Eastern culture where this is written and this is happening. You do not do that. You don't betray your friends. You don't betray your family. And if you do that, that is shameful. That is so shameful. And that's what Mark is saying. Judas comes, one of the 12. Can you believe it, man? One of the 12. And he comes and with him a crowd with swords and clubs. Not with any kind of legitimacy, but a mob. From the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, from them, they can't even come themselves. They send out this rowdy group of hooligans to come and get Jesus. It's shameful. And then he's going to betray him with a sign. It's not just going to be any sign, but he's going to say, I will kiss. The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him under guard. Now, it was a lot more common for men to, to kiss each other in this culture. But it's not necessarily the, the kind of thing you do like in every situation. They just had dinner together, right? In our culture, it must be like a hug. Like you can hug somebody when, when you see them and you have, maybe haven't seen them for a while, two men will hug or it's Sunday morning, so you hug. But at some point, like during the day, you don't just like keep hugging one another, right? It's like I hug you again and then I see you not related and I hug you again. It's like, okay, like this is a little much. Judas is like rubbing it in. They just shared a meal together. They just had this intimate time together. It's like an awkward thing at this point to come up and kiss him. It's like he's pointing at him. He kisses him. He calls him rabbi and teacher. He is unashamed of something that he should be incredibly ashamed for. And Mark is helping us see that he's piling it on. There is this shame that is happening. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But it's not just Judas. See, even his disciples, at first, they betray even the way of Jesus. Instead of sitting and being with Jesus and trusting God, they run to fight and flight responses. We know from the book of John that it's Peter who does this. It says, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. That's not the way of Jesus. Not, that doesn't, that's not what Jesus is doing. It's a betrayal of Jesus. Not to mention, he doesn't go after the one of the guys with a club and a spear. It's a servant kid. Like, oh, tough guy. Be like, we're getting ready to go in a fight, and I'm like, I'll take the small one. And you're like, what are you doing? It's just, it's embarrassing. And that's what he does. And he goes and he cuts off this guy's ear. And in the others, we know that Jesus rebukes him for that. And when they can't fight, and Jesus tells them not to fight, we know they all then flight. And they run away. And the shame piles on as Jesus, in verse 48, he calls it out. He says, have you come out against me a robber? As a robber? With swords and clubs to capture me? During the daytime, day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching. You didn't seize me then. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. It's the reality. They're coming at night. Why? Because they're afraid of the crowd. Shameful, cowardly men and women do things at night. The shame and the cowardice that they won't do this in the midst of everybody in the daylight because they know what they're doing is wrong. And then verse 50, it comes to a head. It says, and they all left him and fled. And then we got the first century streaker. A young man followed him and he has nothing but a linen cloth about his body. That's all he would wear. A young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body and they seized him. 
but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And I think we can all imagine what happens. He gets seized, he probably gets grabbed by that cloth, he pulls it off, and he runs away naked. And that is shameful. In the opening chapters of the Bible, when Adam and Eve sinned before God, it tells us what? And they were naked and ashamed. When Noah gets off the boat and he gets drunk and he shames his family, he's naked. He's bringing shame to his sons. Nudity is shameful. And this is a shame that this guy cannot outrun. He has one linen cloth and he left it. And now he's running around in the dark and he's naked. And here's the reality. The sun is going to come up and he will still be naked. Somebody is going to see him in his nudity and his shame and he cannot outrun that. And someone is going to ask, where are your clothes? And he's going to have to fess up. I was so scared, I left my one linen cloth and I ran away naked. I told him that no matter what, I would stick with him and I would die with him. That's what I promised. And when the time came to do it, I ran away. And he's out here now running away naked. There's no shame. There's no way he can outrun that shame. He's going to get caught by other people. Yet we know this, that when Thomas doubts and says, I need to put my hands in the wounds, Jesus comes to him and lets him do it. And when Peter denies Jesus three times on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus comes back and three times asks him, do you love me? And restores Peter. And we know that all of us are naked and ashamed before God. But the promise of the cross is that Jesus bore our shame and our iniquity on our behalf. And the promise of the cross is that you put your faith and trust in Jesus. You will no longer be naked and ashamed, but you will be covered by the blood of the Lamb. That's the promise. That's the grace in the midst of this darkness. That this guy for 2,000 years, luckily for him, isn't named. But he is the guy who ran away naked. And Jesus is going to restore him too. Because that's what grace does. Because the gospel tells us, Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation, no shame for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the beauty of the gospel. There is no shame for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus. There is grace for traitors. There is grace for us in our trouble. And there's grace for us when we are totally ashamed of everything we have ever done. In James chapter 4, he starts to lay it on thick. And he's talking about conflict. And he calls them adulterers and murderers. I mean, what, what, there isn't anything more shameful. And he just lays it on in James chapter 4. You, you've, God is, you're at enmity with him. What are you, a part of the world? Are you part of who he is? And he is just like bringing the law to hammer down. But then he says five words. He says five words in James 4, 6. And he says, but he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. You have personal failure in your life. 
your personal sin, your personal shame, and you, 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 you promised, you sat there, you walked that aisle, you did that thing, you made that, I'm never going to do this again, and then you did it again. He gives more grace. You're in the midst of hard times, and you're saying, I don't know, I am sorrowful, and I am distressed. I am so sorrowful, it's to the point of death. I don't think I can pick myself back up. I don't think I can keep doing this. I've never felt pain. My heart and my flesh have failed. He gives more grace. You're naked and you're ashamed. You've been found out. People now know. Oh, they know what I've done. What am I going to do now? He gives more grace. That's the promise. There is grace in the darkness. There is grace abundant and free for you. You cannot outsin it. And while you cannot on your own outrun your sin and your shame, Jesus has promised to cover you. That if you place your faith and trust in Christ, you will be covered by the blood of the Lamb. Why? Because he took the wrath of God when he goes to the cross. And he'll cry out that it is finished and it is finished. There's no more wrath to be poured out if you're found in Christ. Because he took it all for you. And the guilt and the shame is gone forever. And Jesus promises to give more grace. So yes, Ten years later, after college, life is way harder than I ever thought it was going to be. But that promise has been true over and over and over again. He gives more grace.